My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm a professor at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast, I'm interviewed by Steve Kendall on Northwest Ohio Journal. Northwest Ohio Journal is WBGU-TV's weekly public affairs program that brings the issues currently affecting Northwest and North Central Ohio into focus. It's now time for Northwest Ohio Journal, WBGU-TV's award-winning public affairs program with your host, Steve Kendall. This is where your community matters. Local people, local issues. Hello and welcome to Northwest Ohio Journal. I'm Steve Kendall. As you probably are aware, there have been recent incidents involving police and citizens that have resulted in fatalities. And at Bowling Green State University, we have a professor who has been doing a lot of research in that area. Uh, I'd like to say hello to Dr. Philip Stinson of the Criminal Justice Program here at BGSU. Thanks for being on Northwest Ohio Journal. Well, thanks for inviting me, Steve. Yeah. So tell us, how did you get into the area of researching uh, you know, crimes by sworn officers? Talk a little bit about your research and how you developed an interest in that. Well, early in my career, uh, right after college, I worked as a police officer for several years, decided to go back to school, went to law school, practiced law for about a decade, mm -hmm. and there came a point where I decided I'd probably live a lot longer if I wasn't a litigator. And I had a passion for the law and thought, you know, what I really want to do is teach and get a tenure-track job as a professor at a research university. And to do that, I needed to go back and get a Ph.D. to earn a Ph.D. So I earned a master's on the way to a Ph.D. in criminology. And it, it, the issue came up early on during that process when I was working on my master's degree in one of the classes I was taking the issue came up where classmates were suggesting that they didn't think police officers got arrested very often and, and I thought that it happened with some regularity and that it was just a topic that really interested me mm -hmm. for one reason there are no official statistics maintained by the government up until this point it's really mm. hard to get a handle on how often uh, law enforcement officers get in trouble, how often they commit crimes, how often they get arrested. If they do get arrested, do they lose their jobs? Right. Uh, are they convicted? You know, what, what happens? So in the process of uh, sort of talking this out that, that semester in one class as a, as a graduate mm -hmm. student, I uh, came to realize that I'd really have to come up with some sort of innovative research design, some sort of methodology thinking outside the box. And this was the fall of 2004, okay. and what I ended up doing was thinking that, you know what, we can learn a lot from the media. We can look at news mm -hmm. articles, and we could probably come up with a way of studying this if I figured out how to do that. Right didn't want to spend money with subscription services having to uh, you know, mm. use uh, Lexus or Westlaw or Dow Jones or anything like right. that. I was aware that Google had developed the Google News page, but mm -hmm. I wasn't interested right. just in the Google News page, which aggregates news from a variety of sources onto to one website, but I was interested in the search engine that drives news stories to that. Okay. And I was also aware that Google had developed Google Alerts, where you could set up automated search terms that just constantly crawl their search engine. So not the regular Google search engine, but the Google News search engine. Ah, okay. So I set up uh, ultimately 48 Google Alert uh, search terms and just let it rip. And, and let it start begin, yeah, giving you information. Right, and, right. and it would mm -hmm. show up as, uh, as emails every time there was a hit on any one of the search terms. Uh, with a link to one or more articles, we'd take a look at the, or initially I would take a look at the articles and see if they met, you know, the criteria of what I was interested in studying. And just after that class, just kept printing things out. And when I was a year or two later starting a Ph.D. program at a different university, 
uh, decided, you know, now's the time to see, can I really do something with this? Can I come up with a uh, dissertation mm -hmm. topic and a research design? Do I have enough data here to do that? Right. So I did a pilot study, and ultimately it worked out to my dissertation topic, and I ended up studying three years, 2005 through 2007, of sworn law enforcement officers, non-federal officers who were arrested across the country. And for the dissertation, it was about 2,100 arrest cases hmm. um, okay. and uh, had initially 109 quantitative variables and that's what my dissertation focused on. I mm -hmm. completed my dissertation in the fall of uh, or the summer of 2009, joined the faculty of uh, Bowling Green at that time and continued to collect data, uh, started to write uh, papers, uh, interested in getting journal articles published, that kind of thing and I wanted to archive the data and mm -hmm. continued to code more years of data. So one of the first things I discovered at Bowling Green was that Bowling Green had an enterprise level content management system, a digital imaging database ah. system called OnBase, made by a company called Highland, which is in the Cleveland area, and was able to convince ITS that this was something that I could uh, make use of for research purposes. Ah. It, wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that the university had uh, at the time thought of could Use, be used in research. In that way. Yeah, sure. it's used for other types of purposes. Oh. So initially, we worked with uh, setting up a uh, digital imaging database, archiving all my dissertation data, and then continuing to log in new cases. Add new, new data. Yeah, and then over time, we kept adding pieces to that database. So we have a relational database that, that took the place of Excel spreadsheets, and it's all tied together to what the other side, the digital imaging mm -hmm. database, which is an object-oriented database. So combined, it's an object relational database. And we've added a variety of things over time, different components to it. We've got news articles. We now get court records, the docket sheets. Ah. Uh, mm -hmm. We've got over 3,000 videos from news stories at uh, TV news Mm -hmm. uh, across the country right. that we're adding a few hundred a month um, mm -hmm. to our database and then ended up uh, applying for a federal grant with the National Institute of Justice to continue mm -hmm. the research and uh, we were successful in that grant application and in 2011 the university was awarded a grant from the National Institute of Justice, NIJ, and that was to code uh, four more years of data. So we'd have seven years of data, mm -hmm. 2005 through 2011 arrest cases. Right. And in the process of that, realized that it wasn't going to be possible to train graduate assistants to work with the paper-based coding sheet, which at this point had become a 21-page coding sheet uh. of about <laughs> 290 variables. Wow. So we worked with ITS to um, develop a uh, computer-based coding instrument, and that's all tied in with the database as well. And uh, that, that's what we did. So in that, mm -hmm. that's, so we're still collecting data. Ongoing. Even though, yeah, <laughs> so um, we're at 10 years now, 10 years right. of data collection, and overall have just over 10,000 cases ah. of sworn mm -hmm. officers arrested across the right. country. Yeah. So, so what people need to understand is this, this is a, not just a quick snapshot, this is a very broad-based study that's been going on so that people don't get the idea, oh, this is just a handful of things that you're drawing uh, conclusions from. This has been ongoing, yeah. it's broad-based, it's bringing in all these different sources so that it is, you know, it becomes a realistic look at what, what we know has gone on in the last, in this case, the last 10 years or right. so. Right, so we've got 10 years of data mm -hmm. and seven years of that is, is now coded. Right. So we've, mm -hmm. we've, uh, we, we've learned a lot. So in that yeah. seven years, mm -hmm. 2005 through 2011 arrest cases, right. we have over 6,700 arrest cases involving over 5,500 sworn officers employed by over 
500 state and local law enforcement agencies okay. in over 1,200 counties and independent cities in all 50 states and the District mm. of Columbia. Okay. There's, there's several interesting things about that. I constantly mm. have to remind myself that you know, I deal with outliers. I deal with right. the exception mm -hmm. to the Good rule. Point. Not every police officer is a bad guy. Most are, are yeah. The are vast, the overwhelming majority are are law-abiding, do their law job and are and, yeah, and are, are and yeah are are good at what they do and don't ever get into these. They don't get these into areas. It's a, right. it's a very small minority. Well, we're dealing we're, with we're a fraction about. of one percent right. in, okay. in the agencies that that we're dealing, that we're dealing with. dealing so with. So there are about mm -hmm. there are about seventeen thousand or so. Uh, state and local law enforcement agencies across the country, ah, okay. and we're dealing with about 2,500 of those agencies. Right. So I don't pretend to suggest that we have every case where an officer's been arrested, mm -hmm. but we've got so many cases that we are able to draw conclusions, right. we're able to make predictions and, and, and that type of thing right. with the data. Mm -hmm. Now, if, and, and, and again, that's, that's a good point to emphasize because this is a broad-based national study. You haven't, it isn't something like, oh, we've isolated a few cases and are drawing conclusions. It draws from multiple sources and, as, as you said, speaks to the fact that there's an extremely small <laughs> group of people that were to the outliers that we're talking about or so that people don't get the idea that we're attacking the police as, uh, sworn officers as a whole here. They had, there, there are a few outliers that right. become it, perpetrators, right. unfortunately. So, so I look at it as a criminologist, my PhD is mm -hmm. in criminology. I look at this now as a longitudinal trend study ah. where we're looking at patterns. We're trying to see if we can predict when an officer would get in trouble. And, and one of the things that I discovered in my dissertation research, and I think it was really important finding, mm -hmm. prior research would suggest that if a police officer is going to get in trouble in their career, they're going to do so fairly early on, in hmm. the first year, three years, maybe five years and if they stay in the job they're going to calm down they're going to ride out their career and they're not going to get in trouble just like most people most delinquents don't continue committing crimes during their life same thing we see over the life course of oh. a law enforcement okay. officer's career at least that's what prior research would suggest okay. but what i found is that over 20 percent of our arrest cases involve officers who were arrested within three years of being eligible for retirement Hmm, interesting. That's, that's a really okay. interesting thing. And we'll we'll come back to that in just a moment right here on Northwest Ohio Journal. Thanks for staying with us here on Northwest Ohio Journal. Our guest is Dr. Philip Stinson from the Criminal Justice Program here at BGSU. And we were talking about the fact that uh, you started to look at, at prior research into when a sworn officer is most likely to have an incident become an outlier in our mm -hmm. research about crimes committed by or alleged crimes committed by officers. And uh, as we were leaving that last segment, you said that prior research would indicate that if it happens early on, it's going to happen, but if it doesn't, it tends not to happen later. But you're saying your wider range of research is indicating yeah. something a little bit different than yeah, that. We see something different. So w one of the things about this study is that we're uh, studying data from thousands of law mm -hmm. enforcement agencies and, right. and prior research typically has looked at one or a few agencies, mm. either observational studies, survey data, that kind of thing, but uh, not looking at literally thousands of right. law enforcement agencies across the country. It's still common today that law enforcement agencies will have 20-year retirement in some places, other places it's 25 or 30-year mm -hmm. retirement. And what right. we see when we graph this is, again, over 20% of the cases are within three years of retirement eligibility. Mm -hmm. So we see a bump at 18 to 20 years, we see another spike at 23 to, to 25, and then mm -hmm. 28 to 30, and we even see it at 33 to 35 years. So the question huh. becomes, 
what's going on here? Why, why are would that, yeah, what, why would officers that, on the right. cusp of retirement uh, committing Suddenly, crimes for yeah, which they end up been, getting arrested? When they've been basically right. good at what they do well, all the way. Well, at least not getting arrested, hopefully, yeah, hopefully right? And they're right. keeping their yeah. jobs. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah that, mm-hmm. that, that's something that, that hmm. I'm still studying. So there are a lot of things that could be at play there. One is police officers are so tied to their identity Mm-hmm. as a law enforcement officer, that it becomes such a part of them that it may be that it's hard to uh, envision turning that off, life after ah, your job. Okay. So maybe sure. that we need to do end-of-career counseling Some, to, mm-hmm. to help people. Um, that kind of transition away from right. being, yeah, from exactly. that. that, that which, which obviously we know this is an incredibly difficult, I mean, difficult isn't even close to the right word, the kind of decisions that have to be made and the vast array of knowledge they have to have and the, and the and of course the critical timing on things so it's it's interesting that we we don't provide that sort of exiting kind of way to, right. to help them with right. that right so the more i thought about mm-hmm. this and in, in trying to think you know what's going on here mm-hmm. what's this phenomenon of, of of police crime i remembered back as a as a young police officer as a recruit at the mm-hmm. new hampshire police academy back in the mid 1980s that we were told there were three things that would mess up your career mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. uh, it was rather a crass statement as to what those three things were but in thinking about it and looking at the data mm-hmm. that i had been collecting realized that almost all crimes for which officers are arrested fall into one or more of five types, and that's violence-related police crime, uh, sex-related police crime, drug-related police crime, alcohol-related police crime, and uh, profit-motivated police crime. Hmm. And about half the cases that we have where officers were arrested, and our primary unit of analysis is arrest case. So not the individual officer, arrested officer, but arrest case. So in about half of our arrest cases, they're violence related. There's something about the crime that's violent. And if you think about it, policing is violent. Sure. It's a violent career. That's what you you deal that's your that's what you deal with on a daily basis. On a daily basis. basis. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that we've looked at in my research group is that it's difficult to turn that off at the end of the Mm. day. There's a lot of work family spillover in terms of violence. The policing Mm -hmm. culture is violence. There's a lot of officer-involved domestic violence. If we look at all the violence-related arrest cases, uh, just over a third of them were for crimes that were allegedly committed while an officer was on duty. Mm. There are some reasons for that because if an officer were to commit a violent-related crime, if they were to Mm. assault somebody on duty, it's not looked at as criminal quite often because they're they're, they're doing their job. They're in the line of duty while they're doing this. That's the envelope that's around it. So Police right. officers are generally exempt. Law enforcement mm-hmm. is generally exempt from law enforcement. Yeah. So we look at, mm-hmm. you know, what is it about these cases that are getting officers arrested? With the violence-related cases, when we look at the on-duty cases, it's fairly unlikely that an officer will be convicted for an mm-hmm. on-duty crime that's violent. So if an officer is charged with assault, uh, it's about 50% conviction. It's, yeah. it's, it's pretty low. It's lower than what you would expect. Yeah, so if the, 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 yeah if a citizen was charged with assault, this number is... Much this higher. Percentage is, yeah. Much higher. Right. So the courts mm-hmm. are reluctant. Prosecutors are reluctant sure. to convict an officer if they've got the case, you know, coming onto their desk. Uh, judges uh, aren't comfortable with it, and mm-hmm. juries aren't comfortable with it. And it might sure. well be that what we've seen in, in recent cases over the last several months, that the same phenomenon is at work there, the same social considerations with grand juries. They're really reluctant to even find probable cause that an officer committed crime right. if it's violence-related and it arose out of their official duties in trying to effectuate mm-hmm. an arrest or something like that. 
On the other hand, mm -hmm. if an officer commits a violence-related crime, a gun-involved crime on duty that falls outside of that, in other words, maybe uh, robbing a drug dealer, that kind of thing, oh. they're almost mm -hmm. always going to be convicted. Oh. So there are other types of crimes where they just, they don't mm -hmm. get that benefit of the doubt. We're not going to excuse the conduct. We're not going to mm -hmm. look at it as justified, and they're much more likely to be convicted. Which is kind of interesting because there, you, and again, you can, I guess you can, you can interpret things in a, a certain way. You would think there would be less, less conviction for basically, in essence, dealing badly with a drug dealer who by definition probably is com allegedly committing a crime versus someone who hasn't committed a crime. So the conviction rate's higher for treating a criminal yeah. badly or a, an alleged criminal badly than it is an average citizen. If, because it's crossing a line. Because it's crossing it's, a line. It's something where hmm. uh, a juror or, or a trial court judge who's you know, mm -hmm. in a bench trial, they just aren't going to look at that and say, you know, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's mm -hmm. something where we're not going to, we don't expect our law enforcement officers to shake down mm -hmm. drug dealers and rob them. Right. You know, there's a right way to go about this. Yeah, so, so. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. so with the with the on-duty crimes, if it's a, a drug-related crime, mm -hmm. they're likely going to be convicted. If mm -hmm. it's a profit-motivated crime that's on-duty, they're more uh, likely to be more likely to be mm -hmm. convicted. And it's interesting because when we look at the drug-related and the profit-motivated crimes, and there's a lot of overlap there; these aren't mutually sure. exclusive categories. Those are more mm -hmm. likely to be on-duty uh, hmm. crimes that the officer arrested for. Whereas the uh, violence, as I mentioned, about a third of them are on-duty. And sex crimes by officers is both an on-duty and off-duty uh, thing. Mm. It, okay. It's a strange thing, and it's something mm. that we've been looking at and, and researching and, and getting some papers uh, published over the last year or two with, with right. uh, officers who are arrested for sex-related crimes. And then alcohol-related crimes are, are, by and large, about 88% of them are off-duty uh, right. crimes that are committed. Mm. So with, uh, w with these different types, there's, there's lots of things that we've mm -hmm. learned. So if we go back to yeah. the violence-related, the off-duty crimes for which officers are arrested that are violence related are really troubling. A lot of them are what other scholars have referred to as uh, a bizarre violence. This mm. gun related okay. crime that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So we have more than a handful of cases where officers just completely misused a firearm mm. in relating to, to their an kids. incident that didn't rise to the level of of, no. of needing that. No, yeah. for example, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a child or a stepchild who didn't do their math homework and the officer ends up pulling mm -hmm. a gun on the kid. Wow. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Who, who would do that? Yeah, you know? the level, yeah, the, the incident is so low on the right. scale that it, yeah, right. and, yet, and yet the reaction is to use your, 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 your gun, your, your, yeah, so, your issued so we see, firearm. Well, the huh. issued firearm is an interesting thing because when we look ah, at the okay. domestic violence cases, um, and I can't remember why I came up with this variable initially, but we had a variable for our domestic violence study mm -hmm. where if it involved the firearm that the officer used, was it department-issued or personally owned? Okay. And if the officer committed an act of domestic violence for which they were arrested and it involved a department-issued firearm, they were not likely to be convicted. However, if they used in hmm. committing a crime of domestic violence a personally owned gun, they're almost always convicted. Interesting. Now, we've, we've got just a moment or so. Why is there any hypothesis as to why we think that's the case? Why, the, why jurors or, or judges interpret it that way? Well, I think it goes back to the point that they want to give the officer the benefit, benefit of, the, of doubt. the doubt. And okay. for some reason, if they happen to pull their... Their service revolver or service, service weapon. weapon, yeah, that, that that somehow falls into the same mindset. Well, we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt, hmm. him or her the benefit of but the if doubt. They, but if they grab the hunting, the, the pistol they keep for home defense or whatever, whatever is handy, 
then it's a, then it gets a different set of then it's just like any context. other domestic violence is the way it's looked huh. at it. and we need okay. to look at that a lot more but mm -hmm. but that's that's a troubling thing sure because that they're both weapons right and and why why one is but as you're saying and we'll get back to this just a second as we have to take a quick break here we'll be back a northwest ohio journal right after this Thanks for staying with us here on Northwest Ohio Journal. Our guest is Dr. Philip Stinson from the Criminal Justice Program here at BGSU. And we were talking briefly, and we've got a, a few areas to cover here in the last five or six minutes, how domestic violence is handled when an officer uses their service weapon, service-issued weapon versus a weapon, a privately owned weapon. Mm -hmm. So talk okay. about why, why we think that there's a, the way the courts deal with that differently. Well, well here's the problem with weapons and domestic violence. Okay. Under the Lautenberg Amendment to the Federal Gun Control Act of 1968, okay. there is a prohibition against possessing or owning firearms or mm -hmm. ammunition if you've been convicted of a qualifying misdemeanor crime of domestic violence. Ah. So if you're convicted of simple assault and the victim was your spouse, your ex-spouse, a child, somebody you have a familiar relationship with, your family mm -hmm. member, that kind of a thing, you're barred under federal law. From being... Yeah. The empty. weird thing about it is hmm. the law actually allows for an exception. So if, if somebody is arrested, if a law enforcement officer is arrested for domestic violence, or what we call officer-involved domestic violence, right. and there's a order of protection against them, a judge can actually write in that they can carry their firearm at work, but only at work, which only is a strange ex exception, and, and mm. it's for the military as well, law enforcement and military. But ah. there's no such exception for cases where there's a conviction. So hmm. uh, it's, it's right. troubling because we have in our database a number of cases, dozens of cases, where officers were c convicted of a crime that's clearly a qualifying misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, and they still have their job today, and they're carrying a gun. Hmm. So it's not my uh, work to out somebody in that regard, but it's, it's a troubling thing, yeah. and, and there's a reason why we have that uh, mm -hmm. firearms prohibition. It's to save lives and to keep sure. people from getting injured. So that, yeah. that's a troubling thing and mm -hmm. it's something we need to, to study a lot more. Right. Now you, you've got some other, you talked earlier about some other areas that uh, that uh, officers are involved in unfortunately and, and so right. talk a little bit more about the, the, the sexual areas and the, the, the uh, drug related and the okay. alcohol related issues. Okay. With the, yeah. uh, the sex crimes, we, we see mm -hmm. a number of things going on there. The, the most troubling thing about the sex crime arrest cases is when we look at the, the victims and the age of the victim and the relationship of the victim to the officer. Mm -hmm. And in our cases, remember, it's both on and off duty, the crimes. Right. Mm -hmm. And the victims are a little bit younger if they're, uh, it's a crime that's committed off duty. Mm -hmm. Half the victims are children under the age of 18. Really? And, yeah, and mm -hmm. it's really, it's a troubling mm -hmm. thing. And, and one of the things we've concluded uh, at least preliminarily in some of the, the recent studies we've done on uh, police sexual misconduct, is that it seems that caregivers, parents, are quicker to give a new boyfriend who happens to be a law enforcement officer mm -hmm. access to their children. In other words, leave them alone with a, with mm -hmm. a, with a child yeah. or an adolescent where they wouldn't necessarily if the new boyfriend had some other some job. Some other career. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So right. there, there's something going on there, and it's really troubling. And as to the on-duty sex crimes mm -hmm. we see we see a variety of things there there are 
a few, a very few police officers across the country who, who are sexual predators. And we see these cases mm -hmm. where there's a victim who's finally believed and there's an arrest made for an officer who's made a traffic stop and committed a violent rape. And what we see in those cases, once there's a victim that's believed, there are charges filed and it makes it into the news mm -hmm. that for every original victim, there's five more. That have and not had yeah. that same yeah. and result. Ag and again, mm -hmm. we're dealing with a very, very small exactly, number yeah, we're, of yeah, individuals here, but those are really troubling. We sure. also see mm -hmm. a phenomenon that Sam Walker, who's a professor emeritus at the University of Nebraska, coined the term uh, driving while female, where you have another mm. subset of officers who are, who are also engaging in predator-type behaviors right. where they're making traffic stops because the driver of the vehicle is an attractive young female, whether ah. they just want to get the phone number, or there's a sexual assault so involved, or the situation so escalates. So they, they, in a way, they kind of profile for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've got just a couple of minutes, so uh, yeah. Well, I think the other thing I want to mention is in yeah. terms of the alcohol-related cases. Okay. We have almost a 1,000 cases where officers were arrested for driving while intoxicated. Mm -hmm. And that interested mm -hmm. me because, again, law enforcement officers are generally exempt from law enforcement, and that's absolutely true with drunk driving. Historically, cops don't arrest each other for, for drunk driving. For that. Mm -hmm. So what is it about these 1,000 cases where these officers got arrested? And, mm -hmm. and what we recognized was over half the cases involve traffic accidents and many of them with serious injuries. Uh -huh. So there are things going on with these cases where they can't be explained without writing a report, calling a tow truck that you're going to have to pay for, that kind of thing. A lot of yeah. flipped cars, a mm -hmm. lot of hit and runs, a lot mm -hmm. of accidents with injuries, you know, just really crazy things yeah. that, that uh, shouldn't but, be going on. Right. Yeah. And, and obviously we've got about 30 or 40 seconds. What's, what's the one takeaway from your research so far that you think people should should really be aware of. Well, you know, one of the things that interests me is that I had going into this thought that if a police officer got arrested, whether they were convicted or not, that their career was over. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not what we've seen. We've mm -hmm. seen that uh, many officers are, con are convicted of crimes that they end up keeping they their job. So on. if they're not a felony type offense, it's not uncommon that an officer mm -hmm. would keep their okay. job, depending on a lot of different other, uh, you know, other, other variables there. But okay. what we want to be able to do is take what we've learned here and put processes in place to help agencies mm -hmm. reduce the incidence of officers yep. getting in trouble. What can we take away from this where we can learn from it and yeah. put things into place to, to help people not get in trouble yeah. during all. their job? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, help them with that. Good. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Philip Stinson, a criminal justice program here at Bowling Green State University. We'll have you back. You're going to continue oh, collecting data, and we'll, we'll talk more about this because, unfortunately, these incidents are going to, they're still going to be this. And again, people have to know we're talking about an extremely small outlier minority here that the, the overwhelming vast majority of, of law enforcement officials do their jobs and professionally and, and, and never run, run into this kind of situation. So thanks for your work and we'll, we'll be talking with you again. Join us each week on Northwest Ohio Journal. Check us out at WBGU.org. And you can also tweet us at hashtag AskJournal. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Lost podcast. This episode originally aired on WBGU-TV's public affairs program, Northwest Ohio Journal, on January 1, 2015. Our thanks to WBGU-TV for giving us permission to use the audio recording on the Police Integrity Lost podcast. WBGU-TV is the PBS affiliate television station at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. I'm Phil Stinson. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu forward slash police integrity lost. This project was supported by award number 2011 IJCX0024 
awarded by the National Institute of Justice, Office of Justice Programs, United States Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this recording are mine alone and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice.